good people? How we doing? I just want to share a few messages with you really quick if you have the time. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with our staff this past week and, you know, we really feel like we haven't given you enough actionable items where our audience can go out there and make a difference in someone's life today. You know, right now is the time to do it when we're all at home um, and people are struggling out there. So um, the two groups that need help in this on these two messages are uh, patients that are going to be left without a, a hospital bed when we reach the top of the curve come mid-May uh, and the homeless. So uh, the first one is from uh, SVN. It's a shared value, one of the largest actually shared value commercial real estate firms in the United States. Um, and what they're doing is they've, they've launched a campaign called hashtag CRE to save lives. So what this is all about is uh, according to a Harvard Business Review study, there's like 924,000 hospital beds right now in the United States available. Um, and by mid-May, projections are showing there are going to be three to four million people that will have COVID-19 and will need to either be in a hospital bed or need um, to be tested. So how do we do that, right? So uh, what SVN has, has put together is uh, they have a ton of vacant spaces in a database of all these vacant spaces. Really, the message today is for medical workers, uh, for government officials. If you know somebody uh, who is in that position to make this decision, you know, please t tell them about this uh, campaign. Drive them to real-leaders.com slash solutions, uh, where they can go on, basically just contact, say, hey, I need this space. Uh, all the listings are close to hospitals. They're either drive-through facilities that they can transform into testing facilities, uh, or just vacant spaces of over a thousand square feet uh, where we can you know, set people up and uh, make sure that the heroes of COVID-19, all the medical workers right now, have a space to treat people. Uh, so it's going to be a, a group effort, a team effort, and the only way through this is together. So uh, real quick, here's a message uh, from the CEO of SVN. My name is Kevin Majacomo, CEO of SVN, one of the largest commercial real estate advisory firms in the US, and I nominate the entire organization, all of SVN, specifically Kurt Arthur, Deborah Kwok, Cameron Irons, Brent Miller, and Brian Edmonds to list their properties on real-leaders.com forward slash solutions for medical workers and locally elected government officials to collaborate for immediate access to vacant spaces for the two million patients who won't be able to be treated in a hospital when re we reach the top of the curve in mid-May. So if you are a medical professional or someone who knows someone who can take advantage of these readily available spaces, please share this video or make your own or tag them in the comment section below using hashtag CRE2SaveLives. So please help flatten the curve and join the other agents who have already placed their listings at real-leaders.com forward slash solutions. Let's do this. Let's make an immediate impact and a big difference. Thank you. Again, people, so go to real-leaders.com slash solutions. Uh, or take a video of yourself, tag us, we'll reshare it on LinkedIn, we'll reshare it, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Um, and let's just make sure we get the ball rolling on this to accommodate the 2 million people that uh, might need space in, here in mid-May. We really don't know what's going to happen. So 
that's one solution. The next one actually comes from our sponsor. I think it's a, it's a great solution. Um, and you know, if, if you're a company who's uh, working remotely right now and you want to send them a little, little pick-me-up gift, great way to help out the homeless. Um, so what is Numbelievable? It's a direct-to-consumer baked goods company on a mission to donate 1 million meals to those in need by 2022. So how does it work? Every time you order a box of cookies, there's 12 cookies, a dozen cookies in a box, um, they are going to donate two meals to uh, soup kitchens across America. Uh, so obviously, you know, very difficult time right now for uh, the homeless population. Um, and this is a way we can drive funds for them in a for-profit model. Um, and also, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out here as well. Uh, they are delicious cookies. Like, I, even if you're not even about the the effort to help the homeless, or you, you know, if you if you just are a cookie lover, uh, I've got a roommate here. Yeah, I, yes, I have roommates. Yes, so I've got a roommate here who orders at like two boxes of cookies a week, and they come from a nice place, you know, down the street. He told me, he's a hard reviewer, and he told me these cookies are like an 8.7. Another roommate said it was 8.5, another one said it was a 9.1. That's saying something. And, and I'm, 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 I will go on the record, and so will they, to say these are the best cookies that you can have shipped to you in the mail. You just don't, they're, they're big, they're, they're chewy, they're, man, they're just tasty. I wish I had more to eat. Um, but we went through that box fairly fast, as you can imagine. Um, so, uh, best deal today is you're going to get 25% off. Um, you, all you got to do is go to realdashleaders.com uh, slash podcast. There's the podcast page. There's going to be a picture of a box, the Unbelievable box on there. Um, and just click on that box. It'll take you to the website. It'll automatically uh, apply a 25% discount on your on any order. So you can order as many as you want. Uh, for your employees, uh, for your family members or friends uh, during these times. A little pick-me-up gift again. Um, and they're delicious cookies. I promise you, you'll probably order another one after you try them. Uh, so real slash solutions, or you can go to an num- unbelievable website, enter in code ReLeaders, uh, all uppercase. Delicious cookies. Uh, and again, helping out those in need. And the last thing you can do, folks, is just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. The 70-70-70. The 70% of the world's uh, produce comes from 70% of the farmers. And the 70% of of, uh, the food demand will increase by 2050. And I'm going to add one more 70 in there. And that's just Tony's 70s. Everything is outdated. It, everything's back in the 70s. The coursework, the old principles of how to make coffee. So it's a 70s, 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 70s rule we got. Actually, there. actually, actually, Kevin, I'm, I'm going to up your 170 with two more 70s. Are you ready? Right, two more right. 70s. Tony, be thinking about your 70s. <laughs> so one is farms around the world consume 70% of the fresh water every year. And that independently is a problem. And so we need some water efficiency innovations in order to address that problem. And then to connect the, how could it be that the people producing 70% of the world's food are also 70% of the world's poor? Comes back to the yield gap because their yields are at a 70% discount to the developed world. 
70, 70, 70, 70. That's a lot of six 70s, 70s Kevin. right now. Is there one more 70, Tony, you can add on to this just to make this a thing? The <laughs> Tony can 70s. throw down a lot of 70s. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where today impacts tomorrow. We give you 70 reasons life depends on farming and leaders keep it real. That was John Denniston, who alongside Tony Salas joins you today to share how their for-profit model is transforming the lives of smallholder farmers, regenerating the land, and closing the yield gap. How will climate change affect their crops and what leadership is needed today to feed us in the future? Find out on this episode of The Real Years Podcast with Kevin Edwards. Enjoy. Okay, here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to the Real Years Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And joining us today from Silicon Valley is John Denniston and from Peru, Tony Salas. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Kevin. Shared X. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about impact today, and I'm excited to have Shared X on because Shared X just received or just placed in the top 100 uh, for our Real Year's 20 or 2020 Real Year's Impact Awards. So I just want to say congratulations for that. And sh- uh, I'm not only excited about the the awards, but Shared X's story. I think it, it embodies what a lot of impact companies are trying to be. A lot of social entrepreneurs are trying to do. So, uh, John, the first question uh, we have for you is, is just tell our audience how this story goes. It's an amazing story. It's one of the craziest stories of my life. And Tony might say the same thing. So briefly, I've spent my whole career in Silicon Valley. And many years ago, my wife and I decided to take our kids to do a mission trip somewhere near the bottom of the pyramid, the base of the pyramid, really for the good of our kids. The place we ended up was a desert-like region in northern Peru. And that's where I met my amigo, Tony Salas, who's on this podcast with us. I'm really happy about that. And he and I have been on a journey. And basically what happened is we came back from our first trip to Peru wanting to help a local smallholder farmer community but I didn't have the agronomic chops and nobody in our family did. So I asked my friends around here, does somebody know an ag expert who lives in Peru? And a friend of mine gave me a slip of paper with the name of Tony Salas on it with his phone number. I cold called him and to my amigo's credit, he said, see, I'll take the call and see he would help. And he did amazing things in this, in this community incomes lifted dramatically. And together, Tony and I came together around this idea to really scale at a significant level, the agronomic expertise that he and the team bring. Incredible. And Tony, how you want to add on to that? What were you doing before John reached out to you? Well, actually, uh, I, I was leading a consulting company. I built up a consulting company here in Peru 25 years ago. And the uh, it started being a very, I mean, from my own academic degrees, I'm, I'm a PhD in science, in agriculture, I have masters in, it was kind of a nerdy, very tech-oriented, you know, uh, solution-oriented uh, consulting company for ag, for farmers, for corporations, even larger ones. But when it, was, it was basically that. With time, I got more involved in, in, uh, in, the, in the business itself. Meaning, I mean, talking about finance, talking about the uh, M&As and bigger companies and 
stock exchange market and launching companies there. And, uh, and that was, I mean, definitely an important switch in my career and in my life. And when I met John, I would say I was uh, already pretty, pretty solid and stable in the consulting company we were doing. We have done probably over 500 projects around the world probably over 30 countries in total, wow. Africa, Europe, I mean, uh, Central America a lot, and, uh, and diverse ways. We have helped the small communities in Africa to develop, I mean, co-ops, and we have also helped, I mean, uh, the, 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 big, big, the biggest companies in fresh food markets actually to, to, keep, uh, uh, to keep up with the pace that, that, that consumers and retail demands. So, at the end, uh, I think we, I have seen so many things in agriculture, but one thing remained the real. I mean, all those smallholder farmers remain in the same vicious cycle of poverty. It is something that nobody can break. So the only sustainable thing they have is poverty. It's on and on and on, and they have tried fair trade, they have done this and that, and nothing has really worked. And there is this big dichotomy of this rich agriculture and the poor agriculture. It is a pie, and if one gets the biggest part, the other one gets the smallest part. And it's always on the smallholders, farmers, uh, I mean, detriment that these deals are being cut. So uh, during my career, I was thinking, how can we solve this issue here? And I would like to John to explain a little bit what the impact farming model, I mean, looked like. John? Yeah, great. Kevin, is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, explain the, the hub and spokes and kind of what are the what are the, the challenges that smallholder farms are, uh, are really facing and, and how is a company like ImpactX coming in and providing solutions to help put more uh, money back into the pockets of those uh, smallholder farmers? Yeah, so Kevin, in one sentence, here's our business plan at SharedX. In one sentence. Love a good one-liner. <laughs> well, you can judge whether it's good. SharedX collapses the agriculture yield gap with our impact farming. That's our business plan. My amigo, Tony, invented the impact farming model. It is game-changing. I'll let him describe that. Let me first describe the agriculture yield gap. This is well-known in the agriculture industry and the literature and so mm -hmm. forth. Basically, the agriculture impact, Kevin, the, the, the yield gap, rather, is the astonishing difference in bushels per acre when comparing a developed and an emerging country farm. In short, the yields in emerging countries should be dramatically higher than they are. McKinsey issued a study a couple of years ago that said the number, way, number one way to alleviate poverty in the world is to focus on smallholder farmers. And that's because smallholder farmers are 70% of the world's poor and the opportunity for improvement is so dramatic. McKinsey concludes its report by saying almost every industrialized economy began its economic ascent with agricultural transformations. And my friend Tony invented a really important one, impact farming. Tony, back to you. And I just want to mention there really quick before Tony goes on. Now, I read a stat. I don't know if it was on your website. I don't know if it was in a book, but it said like 
small horde of farmers produce like 70% of the world's produce. Is that? Yeah. Let me, let me, let me stay on that. Right. So there's this weird paradox, Kevin, 70 and 70. And the number you gave is right. So how could it be that the people producing 70% of the world's food also constitute 70% of the world's poor? Think about that. Yeah. How could that possibly be? Well, the only thing that I know about it is it's wrong. And at SharedX, we're trying to do our little part to help reverse the tide of that. Got it. Okay, Tony, sorry to cut you off. Continue. Yeah, uh, one one interesting thing is that, I mean, I think the impact farming model is a new category of doing business. We didn't want to, I mean, of course, we might have invented it, but we don't want to take proprietorship of it. We want everybody to be as impact farming as possible. So the model is out for everybody. You have contract farming, you have co-ops, you have other things, you have fair trade, and you have impact farming as a different category. So ShareDex is one company that does impact farming, but other companies can also do impact farming. So impact farming is our novel farming model in which ShareDex becomes a neighbor to smallholder farmers and uh, use our local farms, really, which are pretty large, as classrooms from which we teach advanced sustainable farming methods to those that are interested in to getting them. I mean, sometimes poor farmers, uh, I mean, when we think about them, I mean, as in our westernized uh, uh, ideas, uh, yeah, they are poor, they need, I mean, they, they need more money. So the thing is, poor is a consequence. They result being poor because they are lacking the opportunities that others have. They are lacking the access to market. They are lacking access to technology. They are lacking access to knowledge. They are lacking access to a lot of things. So the lack of access okay, puts them out of the equation and they end up being poor as a result. Mm. So if you want to resolve poverty only with money, you're barking at the wrong tree because that's that's not, not where it got lost. You're looking at the wrong side. Mm. So you need really to reestablish the access, okay, for them to actually be able to run out of poverty. Because the problem, as John was explaining, is the gap, is the yield gap. They would like to have twice as much volume and just be paid the same way. I mean, here price is not 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 a lot of the issue. A lot of the issue is the volume that they produce and the volume that they produce and the access to the market. And if we can allow that by having a farm that's a neighboring farm, and we actually collaborate together to have the produce and to ship them all together, I mean, we are selling the produce at the same price that they are selling. We're not buying from them. We're not buying their farms. We're collaborating together to just create a great brand and a great story behind it. So everyone is an owner in, in ShareDex. I mean, we, we never buy farms from smallholder farmers. We just share the techniques, and they need to be sustainable techniques, techniques that we use in our organic farms because all our farms are organically grown. They are certified. Uh, and I just want to recap this for our audience and, and uh, you know, to go off of what you just said, the lack of access and what John was saying in, in one liner uh, for people listening to this. Think of smallholder farms. As, so in, in Peru right now, right, smallholder farms producing coffee. Right. And then 
they, what they have is what Tony just said, a lack of access in volume output, the yield gap. They can't, it's an identical product, but they can't produce as much and sell as much. Therefore, they, they earn less money. Now, when SharedX can come in with new technology, with uh, with a, a market access to a first world country and in, in, in logistics and all that good stuff, they can come in and put more pockets back into the people. Now, is that, uh, John, is that how you are measuring your impact? Is that the direct uh, uh, measurement that you use when you tell someone, how do you measure impact? You say we put more money back into to, to smallholder pockets. Well, actually, actually, uh we have two impacts. We haven't gotten around to our environmental impact, but the pro- we started with the notion that we can lift smallholder farmer incomes by lifting the environment. Sustainable farming methods can yield to more income for smallholder farmers. So there are two impacts that we measure. The first is smallholder farmer income. It's not how much we invest. That really doesn't matter to the smallholder farmer. What matters is what they take home. And so that's the first thing we measure. And the second is the sustainability of our farming methods. Tony is one of the global experts at that. Technically, we've gone beyond organic farming to regenerative farming. Right. Injecting health into the farm. And you're talking to not me, but in Tony, as I say, one of the global experts in that. Yeah, Tony, could you elaborate on this regenerative farming techniques and how it's different than organic farming? Well, when John was saying uh, regenerative agriculture, we're talking about how do we actually look at agriculture, not bringing inputs from outside, but produce inside the farm and really helping the soil to generate the nutrients that the plants need. Sometimes uh, farmers, they don't have the capital to buy imported uh, expensive inputs. So the important thing is that they understand how the plant really works. Once they understand it, they are innovators, they are entrepreneurs, they are leaders, you know? And that's what we want to create. We don't want to just uh, have followers and, and, and tell them, because that's the regular, the extension is, 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 is the typical guy that I mean, uh, runs around with his pickup truck. Uh, walks out to the small farmers says, well, you know, you should do this, you should do that, and gives him a recipe, you know? And then the first thing that the farmer asks is, how many hectares of coffee do you have? Well, none, but I went to the university and you didn't. No, I have a nice, uh, no better. So that doesn't work. You need to teach with the example. So what we do is, this is the way we produce, this is the way we farm, this is the way we prune our trees. Why don't you come tomorrow? And check it out the way we do it. And maybe, I mean, you take something home and, 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 and you change it. Because I'm producing 45 packs instead of 10. And that's four and a half times more. And that's the reason that we are there. You need to be a farmer, to become a farmer, to have the respect, to have, have the trust, to be able to make that connection, that empathy that's so important for smallholder farmers. It, and that's so important, especially soil being such a big topic nowadays uh, in terms of uh, soil erosion uh, with climate change. And I want to touch on climate change another day. Uh, well, not another day, later in the conversation, but sustainable farming. Uh, 
for I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For uh, what, I, what I think is important about uh, Shared X is that you all are focused, obviously, on the bottom line, and you have a a model that also creates an environmental and social impact as well. But it's important for entrepreneurs listening to this, social entrepreneurs, people in this space, to understand how the farmers, like what they have to do and, uh, and what decisions they have to make uh, depends on the market, right? So sustainable farming uh, for a lot of people would say, okay, well, we're going to reduce our water waste, right? We're going to regenerate the soils. Uh, we're going to uh, install these sustainable practices in one way or another, indoor gardens, whatever. But there's also sustainable farming of we are going to put in and we we are going to invest in resources that are going to continually sustain our output. So for John, the question is, uh, what what does sustainable farming mean to you? I know Tony just kind of elaborated on regenerative uh, farming. What does sustainable farming mean to you? And what were some of the conversations you and Tony were having uh, before you made the investments to bring in some new equipment and technology? Yeah, well, let me uh, answer that first by just talking about my co-founder and friend, Tony. Brief bio, born and raised in Peru, educated to a large degree in the U.S., master's, Ph.D. in agronomics, MBA in agribusness from Purdue. This is, this is he's world, <laughs> world class. All right. I've learned a lot in this journey from my friend. It also happens to be that my my uh, second daughter just began her PhD program in America in soil science. So I've learned a lot between my amigo Tony and my daughter, who's all about it. I'm sure you and have. Here's, here's, the, here's the thing, Kevin, is we have this saying at SharedX that our view is that in agriculture, the missing link is soil health. That's the missing link because when the soil is happy, the plant is happy. When the plant is happy, (laughs) the workers and the consumers are getting something healthier. And so it's the missing link. Somehow for the past century, the Western world has by and large thought it was a good idea to farm by dumping chemicals onto the land that I can tell you, Kevin, kills the microbes and changes the function of the land to one that served two purposes as a way as a means of physically holding up the plant and also as a means of delivering nutrition into the plant when you dump chemicals on the farm you you lose that separate second purpose it's not delivering nutrition it's just holding a plant up so to me sustainable agriculture is a radical movement away from exactly that Okay. Yes. And, yeah. Go for and it. That's important, Kevin. In 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 the in the environments where we work, you no know, smallholder farming communities, they are outside of the cities in the rural areas, that are really a, a very fragile environment. I mean, ecologically wise, no. So it's an ecosystem that you need to maintain. I mean, it's the cloudy forest where you have the the the, the coffee, for example, or is the lower rainforest where you have the cacao trees. So you can no, you we, you don't want to 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 rebuild the story of I don't know Indonesia and, and palm oil or something like that. So we need to be very careful on how and what do we teach. So our idea was why don't we have those farms first? 
so they can see that this is really making the change. This is really resulting in something better in the pocket. Okay. Mm. And then they will understand what's doing to the environment. The thing here is that, I mean, all those companies have done the opposite. They just want to sell their products and they've been uh, giving away and contaminating and distorting somehow the, the, the common knowledge of the native farmer towards a different agriculture that nobody was I mean, prepared for, for making sustainable. And that's why we are changing this. So techniques are very easy. Uh, sustainable farming is not complicated. You just have to explain it and it makes all sense. It's very logic. The other one is actually the one that needs to make a lot of explanations. Huh? Right. I mean, why you? I mean, the same amount of nutrients to to a soil that maybe doesn't need it. Maybe you can do it in a different way. No, no, no. You need to put NPK these proportions because that's what the engineer said. And that's the problem. No, we haven't been questioning ourselves. I'm talking now a more philosophical uh, rethinking. No, but I mean, we haven't reflect to ourselves. I mean, what are we doing? Is this something that's going to last forever, or is just this harvest? No. And, uh, and uh, the native farmer is somebody that has been there for a long, long while and wants to continue being there. So I think uh, the whole community really embraces those technologies in a, in, in a different way. And I think uh, we have done a tremendous work with the community for that understanding as a whole, not only environmental-wise, social-wise, but also, I mean, generation-wise. We're talking to, I mean, grandfathers, fathers, and kids and we're changing that whole idea. We're talking about at least 10,000 people that are involved today in the, our shared community, and people that, I mean, were yielding 10 are now yielding 30. So that's 200% of yield gap uh, instead of, I mean, 5% or 3% on price. So at the end, I mean, that's what we are uh, managing. And it's really a lie when people say, well, you know, organic farming, but the yields are lower. But why are the yields lower? I mean. It just I mean, maybe the farmer sucks, you know. That's <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that makes sense in terms of the original question with sustaining. Uh, you're not going to use pesticides because the soil is going to be a lot worse in the future for future generations down the line, and you want to sustain that impact. You want to sustain those yields. So, and I, and the reason I bring that up, gentlemen, is just because a lot of uh, uh, people have this idea about impact companies that there is a trade-off. Um, sometimes there are, indeed. You know, I'd be remiss to say there isn't sometimes. But in, in there are some instances like this that you can have an impact and generate more profitability in the long term. Uh, so, I, I just wanted to throw that point out there. Uh, but let's transition to the operational. I, I threw out hub and spoke earlier. Um, John, would you walk our audience through? I feel like we've been kind of touching around the points, but let's stick to this example in Peru. You're producing and growing coffee down there or, or uh, cacao, cacao plants. Down yeah, co coffee, chocolate, bananas, all that stuff else and others. Yes. John, can you walk us through what your operations are like and how, you know, how does it go from the, the plant or the crop to uh, a market? Okay. So uh, let me talk about the distribution gap. So we talked about the yield gap earlier, which mm -hmm. is a given farm in the emerging country ought to be producing more. There's also another kind of gap, a distribution gap which means there are a lot of intermediaries all along the way collecting most of the profit in the distribution chain. Mm. As an example, Kevin, if you're drinking a cup of coffee, pay two or $3 for it, the portion of the 
two or three dollars that goes to the smallholder farm, five cents, five cents. That's all. And so we're going to work on that also. Last year, uh, SharedX bought an American coffee company called One Village Coffee outside of Philadelphia with the idea that we we would take our coffee beans all the way from our farms to the U.S. consumer. And in that way, improve and accelerate our financial and social returns. That's good for us. It's good for the smallholder farmers. And we get to tell our story directly to the American consumer instead of indirectly through the middle people. And so in everything that we're doing at SharedX, we're on a relentless march towards, it's called vertical integration. Vertical integration is skipping intermediaries. And we've made a lot of progress along those lines so far in our company history, and there's very much more that we want to do. Yeah, so, and today, as you, as you know, Kevin, a lot of uh, uh, newer generations, and even, I mean, ourselves, we, I mean, we like to know where our product came when we are buying it in our supermarket. No, we, we want to look at the look at the package and and, and feel the, the the story of it. So SharedX comes really from shared experience. So we're really sharing the experience with the farmer, and at the end, basically sharing the experience with the consumer when he drinks the coffee. I, I get that, and and direct to consumer is great. So. I'm just trying to think about this. This hub and spoke uh, setup you have, you come in and I read online, you're the neighbor of these smallholder farms. So do you take care of all the distribution and, and coordinate everything? So, you know, like the, the organization in Philadelphia, hey, you know, we're going to produce all the coffee for you. And then we are in, you know, personally going to ship it to you for you to package. Or are you packaging it there in the, the DR or Peru and then shipping them to the customers who either order them online with just the labeling on it? Maybe walk us through that process, just out of curiosity. Yeah, for example, a, a regular coffee farmer will just have and harvest his coffee. And when he harvests his coffee, the coffee is already sold because the guy that gives them money for harvesting his coffee is what we call the grillo. So it's, it's, it's on the grasshopper, the grillo. So this is the guy that really is already putting money in order to put the farmer in debt. Okay. okay. So it then after that he just collects the coffee at whatever price he has set. Has nothing to do with uh, with uh, with with his quality at all. So quality is not in the farmer's brain at this moment because he thinks, hey, you know, quality is not going to bring me any upside. I just sell it the way I always have. So that's the first paradigm that we had to kill. You know. Mm. So say, well, what you need to do is why don't you harvest your coffee? Okay, we can advance some money for that because we're going to get paid anyways. Okay, and just harvest it well. We want to have the ripe cherries, the nice red cherries. Don't don't harvest the other ones. Come back again. Harvest when they are ripe because those are going to give you higher points, high quality, and that means higher price and better reputation at the end because you're going to have a fantastic market. And why don't you bring your coffee to our uh, uh, processing plant? So we have uh, a wet mill. Okay, a washing station will, when all those farmers come in uh, every single night, basically, because they do it at night, okay, and they dump the coffees there, right. and we process them, and we measure qualities of each of them, and they want to know what quality they have. I mean, I was astonished when I came in there 10 years ago. 90% of the farmers had never tasted their own coffee. 
Isn't that a shame? They were drinking Nescafe from from uh, instant instantaneous uh, tins. Being a, a coffee farmer, they just they they didn't know how the coffee tasted. They had fantastic coffees. So, and we have seen, I mean, who has the best coffees? Who needs to change the varieties or not? And then we collect everything. And what all the exporters do, they sell it to a miller. And then the miller makes the milling, and then they sell it to another intermediary, which are the largest. All um, whatever uh, uh, other big companies, uh, even 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 Nestle, that buys it from the port. Then you ship it, and then you store it, and then logistics and that. I mean, that takes a lot of intermediaries and a lot of hands. What we do it, we do everything ourselves, and we ship it to ourselves in one village. Mm. Okay, so we are cutting out all those intermediaries uh, along along the chain. There are some intermediaries, of course, that add value. And I mean, charge you decently for that, and that's fine. But I, I think uh, there are a lot that just take advantage of the whole distortion of the situation, the whole asymmetry of know-how. I know a lot, you don't know anything. I have leverage. That's why I'm going to take advantage of my own business. And that is a business that has been going on for generations, mm. which is fine. That was probably a 70s or an 80s business. But I think now that's over. That's that. That's now has his his. Yeah. The clock is ticking for those guys, and those guys need to change. They need to understand that people uh, want to know. I mean, what is for real and what is not for real. And a lot right. of these big companies, they're trying now to make this. No, we work with the cops. We will be socially very good. We have those nice web pages with all those cool guys around. And uh, that's at the end. I mean, it's it's not true. We don't care about that because we're doing our own stuff. We're looking at our own plate. We don't look at the plate of the other guy. But I mean, what I'm saying is we're just satisfied that we have found a way with impact farming and the happens both model where we can collect and collaboratively actually work towards a story that's for real. That's the most important thing. When we tell you something, when we say that this coffee comes from Esteban or from Juan or from Jose, it really comes from him. And this guy knows who I am. This guy knows who John is. And this guy has been working with us for the last five, six, seven years. And I think that's important because, I mean, that gives them a sense of ownership and, uh, and self-esteem, you know. One thing that you have lost in all those rural communities is everybody looks down. Everybody looks to the white guy to say whatever he has to say. And then they mumble and they go around. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm. They come up with ideas. They come up with innovations. They want to participate in this. They see themselves in our webpage. They see themselves in our coffee reflect. They're enjoying this trip the same as we are. Mm. It, it, absolutely, Tony. And, and that was the, the touch on that point. Now, let's stay on this idea of it needs to change. What that means to me is consumer demand needs to change. Uh, so, the, so John, you've been in the venture capital, you've been in this space, and you've been working with agriculture uh, companies, investing them, looking at them, uh, looking at trends and consumer demand. For my drinking of my own coffee, I used to be like the farmers. I used to have the Keurig cups. Uh, now I've tried Bird Rock Roasters. Shout out to them in San Diego over there. They're fair trade coffee supplier as well, and it's just an incredible difference. It's worth the extra premium price to pay for something that I drink every day. There's no question about it because I, I myself am a coffee snob. Uh, but John, the question for you is what really needs to change uh, in order to uh, support businesses like yourselves for impact companies in general who have a premium product, who are following ethical principles, who are creating a, a better, uh, a red cherry versus a yellow one. 
what are you seeing in terms of consumer demand with trends right now? And what gives you the confidence that this organization is going to be able to, to sustain this demand and increase it? Yeah, so the, uh, so many reasons to be excited and confident for the impact economy going forward. Let me, let me tell you a story since you like stories, Kevin. So, yeah, in August of last year, six months ago, the Business Roundtable, which is an organization comprised of America's largest corporations, made a stunning public announcement. They now reject shareholder value, which is it's all about a, the profit, and now support stakeholder value. So I've begun to ask the question, why? Why did they do that? Here's my answer. They have to for the following reasons. What does a company consist of? Consists of its customers, its workers, and its investors. That's everything. That's 100%. And all three of those markets, the consumer market, the worker market, and the capital markets have surrounded companies wanting the companies to also do good beyond profit. So here are the numbers. This comes from a uh, New York University study published about six months ago. Over the past five years, Kevin, the percentage of the consumer products market in America that came from sustainability marketed products was one half. That is to say, half the growth in the consumer's product market in America came from sustainability products. The growth rate is five times higher for sustainability than for conventional products. If you're in a board of directors of any corporation, you're looking at those charts, different growth rates, I want to be on the top line. That's what's happened. And so the market is our friend. It has changed, right? It's not a market waiting to happen. It's a market that is happening right now and particularly expressed emissions. Millennial generation, Gen Z, the buy rates are even more impressive in that way. That's the first. Second is in the worker market for millennials and Gen Z, the percentages that want to combine a job and purpose is off scale, very different than the older generations. That portends the future also. Finally, in the capital markets, if you look at publicly traded uh, funds that uh, carry public equities, basically stocks, roughly 25% of that now is ESG screened. 10 years ago, that rounded to virtually nothing. So it's gone from zero to 25% of the US public equity market in the past 10 years. And that 25% equals $12.5 trillion. So it's over. That's not going back. So your question, what do we need to have happen? We need to have happen what is happening. And the trend rates are really, really promising, I think, for the future of the impact economy. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Oh, go for it. And Kevin, just, just, just to add, Absolutely. I mean, and what the big companies are doing, I think, is either they are acquiring the smaller companies that have purpose, I mean, in order to actually capture that market, because otherwise they're going to lose, or they are opening other markets, and then they are milking that cow in Africa or in Haiti or whatever. It's a shame, but that's what they are doing. And they are filling up, I mean, that with, I mean, super industrialized products that, I mean, uh, have nothing of nutrients and are full up with, I mean, things that probably do very bad to your body. So at the end, I mean, cheap wheat and cheap sugars, I mean, that's that's not going to be in the U.S., that's not going to be in Europe. So at the end, I mean, those are the markets that we are now focusing on. But I mean, at the end, 
that's going to spill over. So the positive externalities of this, nobody can stop those. Yeah, it, uh, the the externalities, right? I think this is a, a great you know question to think about. Uh, you've mentioned generations. What decisions are we going to make today that are going to impact future uh, generations? And and uh, John, you made the distinction of shareholder uh, maximizing shareholder value versus uh, uh, delivering stakeholder value, um, and those are uh, concepts of a lot of certified B corporations, benefit corporations, which are also different. Um, and in terms of uh, how, how companies can make a decision, do they have to listen to the influence of others to uh, achieve the bottom line? Um, but I'm going to throw out a stat for you both really quick because we're, co- we're talking about the externalities and why businesses are changing. It's crazy. I actually had no idea. Zero to 25% are using ESG, ESG screening, using environmental, social, and governance standards as a, as a, as a risk lens for investment. Um, it, it's very interesting. Gentlemen. For every one degree of warming, this is according to the uninhabitable Earth by David Wells, a New York Times guy. For every one degree of warming, yields decline by ten percent. Okay, so we're in we're in the DR. We're also in Peru. Uh, I read on your website Peru has like twelve hours of sun a day for, throughout the entire year. I'm sure the DR isn't any different. It's 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 on the equator. Now these are areas prone to to warming as well as are going to be hit hard with uh, natural catastrophes potentially in generations to come. What are the conversations, Tony, that you and John are having about uh, the the climate change? And uh, are there any uh, things that scare you about the future of uh, your your plants down there? Uh, I think John can dig on that easily. But what I have to say is that, I mean, one thing that we have very clear is that climate change is 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 just, I mean, it's, it's on the rise and, and it's changing so much. And uh, that, I mean, we don't have, uh, we don't even have a forecast of a regular, what it should be a regular normal year. No? Every time, every year is different in different aspects and it's just changing so fast. And what we have done is we have just, I mean, focused on how do we diversify? How do we mitigate risk by just having, I mean, a broad sense of, I mean, of countries that we're in, in a broader sense of uh, crops that we work on, and get the small, small polyfarmers also involved in things that we know, I mean, are going to stay for a longer time. So at the end, uh, of course, you can talk about price. How price is going to is going to also, I mean, uh, depend on on, on 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 climate change. If, 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 I mean, supply is, is being reduced, I mean, good coffees uh, will tend to disappear. And uh, so that's something that we need to think about. You're right, John? Yeah, so let me start, Kevin, with your really, really good question, is one of the best ways to capture carbon is add the carbon to the soil through regenerative farming practices. So at a top level is systemically, what can the agriculture industry do about it to help? A lot, and it's not really being done. So this whole regenerative agriculture movement is extremely important for the health of the soil, the health of the workers, for the health of consumers, but also for the climate, first and foremost. The second is, I mentioned earlier, there's this paradox of 70-70. How could 70% the people producing 70% of the world's food also be 70% of the world's poor? 
here's a third 70% figure, Kevin. In order to feed all the mouths in the year 2050, the world has to increase food production 70 percent ah. 70 70 70 okay how can it do that if the climate is changing and the variability and the predictability like tony talks about that's a big problem so at shared x as tony says we're handling that through both diversification and technology innovation adaptability of local farms we're trying to share those methods with smallholder farmers and uh but it's a big challenge, more so for the world than it is for agriculture producers for the reasons that I've stated. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing, John. I'm a big nerd. Oh, Tony, I was just going to say, I'm a big nerd yeah, yeah. when it just, comes to just this one stuff, little, so. Just one little thing uh, that has to do with regenerative agriculture. I think uh, because of that high industrialized agriculture we have been proposing, climate change will affect more those plantations, the plantations that have regenerative agriculture in their abilities and technologies. Because, I mean, the soil, I mean, is a natural protector of different things. I mean, the biostimulants that come from uh, efficient organisms, everything that, I mean, the plant, you know, the plant can't move. The plant can't run away if a tiger comes in. So it has to stay there. So it has a lot of secondary metabolites that's producing all the time. No, And, and so it, it's full with a lot of energy and, 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 and chemicals that, I mean, avoid and sustain problems. It's a really resilient organism, I would say. So if you actually encourage them by putting that back again, the microorganisms inside and the soil and the health of the of, of, of the plant that way, I think that's also a way of definitely maintaining a sustainable agriculture. I mean I mean and 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 and, and uh, mitigating a little bit what climate change brings up. I mean climate change will just devastate those large, uh, whatever, soybeans and, 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 and maize productions or cotton productions or sugarcane productions, I mean, that had that very high technology seed that, I mean, if you go just one degree out of the margin, I mean, you will have a, whatever, a, 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 a pest breakdown that, I mean, that, I mean, the, the, the cultivar doesn't have the ability to resist. So, I mean, that agriculture is much more fragile than the agriculture that we are doing. But I mean, it's, 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 it's a shame for everybody. Well, that's why I asked you, yeah, I'm, I'm a nerd on this topic and I'm not going to claim that I know anything about farming, but just from what I've read is uh, like we see it in where, where John is right now in Silicon Valley uh, with the vineyards. Uh, and a lot of these vineyards are starting to move north towards where I'm from in Portland, Oregon, uh, because of the fires and uh, soil and, and some would say climate change. I'm not going to state that I'm an expert in that by any means. Um, but I think what, what John was re- referring to, you both are referring to regenerative soil, soil is the drawdown effect of, uh, of, uh, carbon dioxide, uh, in these areas. And, and John, I was going to say that the stat I had was you probably have a more up to date stat. I was going to say the planet will need twice as much food in 2050 as it does. And if, uh, it continues at this rate warming, uh, in the areas, I think in theory, warming is supposed to help plants, um, or no, sorry, is it? Yeah, in, in theory, warming is not supposed 
warming is supposed to decrease yields. CO2, in theory, is supposed to increase yields. However, uh, I read that like the plant leaves get like a lot bigger, but they it, it hurts the uh, carbon dioxide intake. Therefore, like billions and billions of carbon dioxide will not be uh, taken uh, by this this action. So I thought that was really interesting. I just no, 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 no. That, that's something. good. That, that's that's exactly right. And uh, by the way, right. if uh, if a plant really grows more and has larger leaves, automatically you will evaporate more water. Okay, because you have okay. a lot your surface you will require more water uptake in order to maintain that heat and uh, that's going to be a problem as well so at the end uh, it, it's 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 definitely a problem climate change is a problem for everybody and right. the best way to mitigate it is actually having sustainable practices today and uh, really having a claim on the ones that don't have it no and and do something from the consumer side well i'm not gonna buy those crackers i'm not gonna buy that kind of uh, whatever fettuccine. I'm not gonna buy this kind of drink, and uh, and I think that is the only way that this goes. I mean, we've been probably raised up with different food and superfoods than the kids are raising being raised up today, and I think that's fantastic. And they have a sense of nutrition, what's good for the body, when should they eat, if they do keto, if they do 12 hours of I mean, uh, fasting and they, I mean, everybody's with that today. I mean, they are relearning how to eat. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, totally. and, and I, I'm just going to keep hitting this point and sorry guys, I'm going to keep going on and on. I'm going to tell another story because I think this is just so important. And John, you mentioned the 70, 70, 70, which I had no idea about at all, but let's think about this audience. You know, 70% of the world's food comes from smallholder farmings. If you look at our history and you take the American Dust Bowl, uh, for instance, these are farmers that were impacted by a change in the climate. We don't know why it changed that vast, but a lot of the farmers lacked the infrastructure and the technology, for instance, what Shared X is taking on, to change their crops to, to help grow different crops in those different soils. So if this climate does change, it, it will impact a lot of these smallholder farming communities and a lot of our food supply uh, will become a, a major issue uh, in this space. And, and uh, the question I'll ask you, John, is uh, I was watching the Democratic debate the other day, first time I've ever watched the Democratic debate, and uh, they got asked about agriculture. They're in, the, they're in the Midwest. They're in the Iowa caucus right now. And there was no solution for it other than let's let's throw federal funding at it. So the question I have for you, John, is, is yeah, it's it, I thought it was a lot, but apparently not. Uh, asking, asking you, John, is... Uh, what uh, what is uh, the government's role uh, in impact or in shared X, and what are the municipalities' roles in the environments that you work in? Yeah, virtually one of the great things about the impact economy, Kevin, in my view, is it's it's outside the political system. Yeah, exactly. So to do what we're doing at Shared X, we don't need an act of Congress. We don't need a presidential decree. And that's a beautiful thing in at least in America, I think in many parts of the world, just the gridlock of public policy. But here, here's the thing. Let me go one further on agriculture and ask then answer a rhetorical question. Why is it that in America, information technology and biotechnology started so much sooner and proceeded so much faster than agriculture technology? There are a lot of reasons I think people can throw out there. One that I'm going to offer up is government research 
funding. And so from a public policy perspective in America, there have been tens of billions of dollars that have gone into electronics, electrical engineering, the semiconductor, and so forth. And likewise, cures to human disease through the National Institutes of Health, annual budget of 30 or $40 billion. The budget available for ag innovation, scientific innovation rounds to nearly zero in the federal budget. And what exists is incremental. Hmm. It's it's not breakthrough innovations. And so for whatever reasons, we've made that decision. And so I think going forward, our point of view at Shared X is in the face of climate change, the farming groups that are most likely to thrive, to succeed and even thrive in that environment are those with deep agronomic capability, because those are the ones that know how to deploy advanced sustainable farming techniques. And part of what we're trying to do at SharedX is to deploy more broadly that knowledge and those techniques. One thing that's important, Kevin, is that, I mean, when you look at also the money that's available for, for research and what has been studied and what has been not, what I'm talking about, SharedX invests in the what, what I call the orphan crops, crops that don't have a, a funding of a father and a mother, don't have friends and family to offer them capital. So beans and maize and potatoes, I mean, because those are produced and consumed in the westernized world. That's why they invest the research in that. But how much money has the US or Europe invested in coffee? How much have been invested in bananas? How much have been invested in cacao? No, they have invested in making chocolate, the Swiss ones, for example, but they haven't invested in, 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 in the cacao farms. What about new varieties? What varieties that are resistant to some changes in the environment or to some particular virus or bacteria or fungi? I mean, we need to think about it. So, I mean, it's our countries, let's say, I mean, the poor countries, they need to put money in, and they have, of course, a softest choice. Should I put the money in building a new school? Should I give it to research in cacao? No, and, and that's the problem that poor countries have. So at the end, at the end those orphan crops, they don't have those. What are the last, I mean, I don't know, 10 new varieties in coffee in the last 20 years? I mean, you have 10 varieties of soybeans every six months from one single company, maybe. So you're talking about our innovations are real innovations because they are going, I mean, focused on smallholder crops. Guys that have that kind of thing, and you also need to come up with scientific solutions and technologies that will allow the small farmer to adopt them. Because I can come up and say, well, you know what? You should use these drones and you should fly. Uh, but come on, man. I mean, so, so, I mean, if I give them a medicine that they can't buy, they're going to die, see? So I have to come up with soft solutions that are applicable, that are adoptable by a small farmer. farmer. That's, that's really complicated and you need to be in that particular region to be able to come up with those ideas. And I think uh, that's definitely an advantage. And that's why we are there, because if we wouldn't be there, I mean, nobody will. I mean, uh, uh, just a buyer of coffee or cacao. Yeah, I, I, I pay the, the smallholder farmers a good price. And I'm a good guy. I do social whatever good. And I'm an impact person. And uh, I just buy coffee from smallholders. And, and that's what I do. That doesn't make a difference, unfortunately because the difference is not there. The difference is in the yield gap. 
and the yield gap and sustainability of that yield gap or not. And we need to work on innovations in science and technology. I come from that scientific background. I think John, having been in Silicon Valley all his life, has that thing as well. And the only thing is thinking about that and making the smallholder farmers part of that thinking. They need to be become part of that of that solution. And I think that's something that's important for us to create leaders in that society, to have that opportunity. John? Back to you, Kevin. Great answer, Tony. Yeah. Well, food people. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget what we need to survive and it gets overlooked. Um, it just there's it's so robust just like what tony was saying people you know what's what is it going to take what is it going to take is it education is it consumer education is it understanding is it marketing is it operationally getting around to everybody what's it going to take how are we going to like john said collapse uh, the yield gap is what fascinates me and and it's it's a big problem and it's going to be increasingly a big problem we had on uh, a man from a food analytics company uh, come on the show the other day and they said they had a partnership with a U.S. general, four-star general in the United States military. He said the, the biggest threat to our, our military right now is what? Food. Food's our biggest threat, which I found very interesting. Um, so, John, did you want to elaborate on anything else um, about f- food shortage or, or, or uh, government funding or anything like that? No, this is kind of a big, uh, big conversation. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's I guess I'd say this, Kevin, you know, what we've talked about the last five minutes or so is another missing link. Mm. How is it that we can find ourselves in this position where uh, we have to increase the food supply 70 to 100 percent, take your number and running into these challenges. And so we need more, like Tony said before, groups out there looking to turn the agriculture industry, the way farming is done around, because the way it's going right now probably doesn't get us where we need to be. Right. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and, and, and com- complementing to that, uh, I mean, philanthropy and, and NGOs, they're doing a great job. I mean, I have seen many, many projects of them here in, in Latin America and in Africa. But I mean, that's never going to be enough because I mean, right. there's not enough capital way that those guys could turn that around. So it is really the private companies and private capital that needs to do that from the hands of governments that allow those capitals to flow. And uh, so I hear again by creating impact farming, we're happy about that. But I mean, that model needs to be a category for everybody to adopt. I don't know. I don't care if it's a certification, a a, a new way of of, of having a a seal on, 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 on a box or not. But what's important is that other companies implement that. Because, I mean, sure, it has a limit, of course. We can only do so much, and we only have yeah. that capital, and that's fine. But, I mean, I invite here, no? I mean, lots of companies to think this way. And, it's, again, it's a, it's a different chip. It's a different mindset. And that's what we need, uh, actually, to, to, to call attention for. Right. Yeah, that's that seems to be the the case with NGOs and nonprofits is the can this sustain? Uh, can we compete? Can we bring in the capital? Uh, what are some of the challenges maybe that uh, shared X is having? Uh, is, it, is it hiring the most talented people? Is it uh, is it the the infrastructure? Is it capital funds? Is it is awareness. John, what are some of the challenges you were facing when, when you're starting up shared X? Well, I mean, uh Right. Definitely challenges. But at a top level, uh, 
we've come out really rapidly. I mean, so in, in the context of both from a financial and a social environmental perspective, we've done a lot in a very short period of time. Okay, just full, full stop on that. In that context, challenges all the time. Um, I would say for me, and I've learned this from Tony, one of the things that I've learned is no two communities are alike smallholder farmer communities. And so one of the things that I've learned is the need to adapt how we deploy our hub and spoke, how we deploy our impact farming in particular communities. Tony's the real expert on that. I'd say that's that's the first. Uh, the other I'd say, and this has improved, when we started SharedX almost five years ago, four and a half years ago, the impact economy was new. So almost the year zero, you know, <laughs> neither BC nor AD, right? You know, right at year zero. And so there was a language problem where Tony and I would tell people we're an impact company. And some people would say, well, you mean you're a nonprofit? Or people would ask, well, how do you make the decision between financial and social returns when we've designed something that eliminates the trade-off? And so there's been an education that's uh, taken place in the markets, in the consumer and the worker and the investor markets. We've seen that upfront and personal at SharedX. And so that's less and less of a challenge as time goes on. Do you think market-driven solutions can actually take on climate change or reduce what we're dealing with or what we what we uh, are planning on dealing with in later, in later? I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, Kevin, I think there's no way to get home without them. And let me give you some math behind that. If you take a pie chart of, I'll take US GDP, the the economy, economic output, divide it into three parts, nonprofit, government, and for profit. That's it. There's nothing else that adds up to 100%. Here's the shocking thing that I learned. Nonprofits annually as a percentage of GDP, the donations to them is 2%. Well, they, nonprofits do wonderful things, but there's no way to solve the world's biggest problems on 2%. Mm. The second part, the second slice of pie, size of government, 25 to 30%, that's federal plus state plus local, but actually that's a misleading number because the right number is the variable portion of that, which is tiny because we have social security and Medicare and Medicaid and the defense budget and so forth. So actually the percent of the GDP that's variable in government is maybe 2%, the same as nonprofits. The only thing that's left is the for-profit sector. That's roughly two thirds of GDP, almost 70%. And so there's no way to address climate change and inequality and all the other problems that we have without the participation of the, the, uh, the for-profit sector. I'll finish with this on your really good question is, I can't prove this, but my belief is the movement of those markets that we talked about before, the consumer market, the worker market, the capital markets in the direction of impact is a response to that. that nonprofits and government can't by themselves solve it. The for-profit sector has to come to the party.
Right. Yeah. And I like the way you, you phrase that, too, is, uh, you know, there's some humility with that as well as I, I don't know the answer. And I think that's important. We want to have on this show objectively. This is what we think as well. Um, but yes, directionally, we, we know where we're going. We see this with the increase of alternative energies. Uh, I mean, the biggest no brainer for me is what India India, uh, a country full of coal uh, and energy, is, is has turned down uh, bids for building a new coal plant and has switched to uh, solar panels. Basically, uh, it's like 500 he- hectares of energy for a cent. Uh, they, they see where this is going directionally. We know where we're going. What mines is it going to take? So the question I have for, for Tony, if you want to take this, is that this would be great too, is what what needs to change amongst the mindset of, of business owners in order to make or adopt some of these social principles? Are, are, is there a specific incentive that pops out into your mind? Is it generational uh, upbringing? I mean, John even shared his story with his kids and now his daughter studying soil science. That may have had a, a, a played a factor into his, his change into this career as well. I mean, what are some of the things that you believe need to change in order to for business owners in the for-profit sector to adopt some of these uh, these uh, principles? Well, uh, there are a lot of things that need to change. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, you need to start from the basis, probably infrastructure-wise and, 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 and from the, I would say, political mindset of how you build uh, universities and careers and, and coursework. I think that coursework is from the 70s. Yeah, of course. And uh, that's built up from people from the 70s. So we have maintained that, teaching the same courses and with the same books, with the same vision all the time. And uh, so we don't give the young kids the possibility to, to think out of the box, to be lateral thinkers on that particular issue. They are in the smartphones, in the apps that they use, in the games that they play, you know, in 3D or whatever, which is fine. But I mean, that's very westernized. They need to think about, okay, and what about the rural areas? What about the rest of the world? How can, how is that developing today? What can we make to make this, this this a big change? And I don't think I don't see a lot of courses there. I don't see that the agricultural curriculum has changed also a lot. It it has gone a lot into technology again, very engineering oriented. No, we're going to do more biotechnology. We're going to do more GMOs. We're going to do more molecular biology. We're going to edit the genes now. Okay, good, fine. But what about the rest? So that holistic approach of where we're heading that you just mentioned, I think that's important. And, uh, and, and that is the thing that is still missing. So, I mean, there are a lot of other thinkers and youngsters are fantastic people, but I mean, it's not going to be enough because I don't believe in that just, I mean, single leaders can just, I mean, make those changes. I think it needs to become a movement at the end. So it needs to come from everybody, everywhere. Right. We need to see the science everywhere. That's what I think. So that way, I mean, the companies will change, consumers will change, everybody will start speaking a different language. And John, what about you? I mean, you were a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. I mean, gosh, I mean, you're, you're just such a vulture, you know, and, and I'm kidding. But what what did you do to make that change? Uh, what really drove you? Uh, was it just the market opportunity? Was it simple business or was it more of a philosophical uh, forthcoming? Yeah, I'll say, you know, we uh, it goes back, Kevin, to the story I told at the outset, which is how did Tony and I meet? We met because my wife and I decided it'd be good for our kids to go 
encounter the base of the pyramid and, and ended up changing me too. And so it opened my eyes and uh, the fulfillment that I get in doing uh, the shared X work with Tony and our fabulous team is just off scale. And so uh, that's not what I expected taking our two daughters to, uh, to South America, but that's the fact of what happened. Well, gentlemen, I feel like that that kind of brings our conversation full circle today. Um, and let's just recap this really quick. Uh, full stop. The yield gap. Uh, we talked about that a little bit. Collapsing the yield gap and, and putting uh, more dollars back into the pockets of of, of smallholder farmers. Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, we we talked about the 70, 70, 70. Uh, the seventy percent of the world's uh, produce comes from seventy percent of the farmers, and the seventy percent of, of uh, the food demand will increase by 2050 and i'm going to add one more 70 in there and that's just tony's 70s everything is outdated it, everything's back in the 70s the coursework the old principles of how to make coffee so it's a 70 70 70 70s rule we got actually there. actually actually kevin I'm, I'm gonna up your 170 with two more 70s are you ready all right, all right, two more go. 70s tony be thinking about your 70s <laughs> so one is Farms around the world consume 70% of the fresh water every year. And that independently is a problem. And so we need some water efficiency innovations in order to address that problem. And then to connect the, how could it be that the people producing 70% of the world's food are also 70% of the world's poor? Comes back to the yield gap because their yields are at a 70% discount to the developed world. 70, 70, 70, 70. That's a lot of 70s, 70s right now. Is there one more 70, Tony, you can add on to this just to make this a thing? The 70, <laughs> Tony can 70s. throw down a lot of 70s. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we talked about the 670s then. And then okay, 670s. the 670s, I'm sure we'll figure out one more and then we'll gotcha. trademark it and then then we'll be famous for this. this, And, right. and then that we're will drive market there, driven we're solutions. Almost there. We're almost there. Yeah, we're one away. Yeah. People, if you're listening, help us out. Um, and then lastly, wrapped up with, with a conversation around uh, can market-driven solutions really have an impact in this world? And and that's something that's going to take a lot of leadership. So, John, the last question I have for you both is what is your definition of a real leader? I'm going to start and Tony can, can pick this up and run with it. At SharedX, we have a different philosophy on what a leader is. At SharedX, a leader is somebody who inspires others. And so that's not a top-down view. It's not a bottoms-up view. At SharedX, we have a community that encourages everybody to exercise their creativity. And those coming forward with new ideas, whether no matter where in the org chart, they're a leader. And sometimes, as Tony said earlier, that can include smallholder farmers that come up with some innovative technique or approach. And we learn and we're open to that. And Tony's the one that that led that. So we really haven't adopted the conventional perspective that leadership is Tony and me taking everybody and, you know, up the mountain sort of thing. That's not our view. It's, it's not a top down. It's not a bottom up. It's everybody together. And it turns out the fulfillment and the passion that results in shared X as a result of that 
are to me very, very impressive. Well said, John. Tony? I can I can only add to what John says as a personal experience, no? having been there with, uh, with smallholder farmers in Latin America and basically in Africa, having seen, I mean, in the eyes of poverty, no? And the eyes of poverty and the eyes of hope in the eyes of of leadership as well. So again, as John says, everybody, I mean, has the potential to be a leader there, to be a leader as a father as well, a leader as a brother. So I think, I mean, that whole idea of empowering societies brings them to leadership automatically. That's like the spark, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, I have a leader that I define as that. His name is Grimaldo Guayana. Grimaldo Guayana, he doesn't know how to write. Okay, and he has been every single year, I mean, the one that produces the highest yield of coffee in his little farm that's one and a half hectares large. So Grimaldo Guayana for me is a leader. And when I met him, he could barely, he, he didn't talk, he was ashamed of himself, I don't know what, of being poor, okay? Now he's a totally different person. Mm. I mean, and I have other leaders there as well that I can tell you stories about. Every single member of our family, I think, has that potential. And I've seen that with my bare eyes, I mean, changing them. And now, you know what? I mean, when we do those KPIs and we measure different things of all, all those, all of those economists and social economists have, have done the, the quantitative and qualitative analysis of, of what is good, what is impact, and how much have we uh, have we increased, and how do measure that? How do you measure happiness? How do you measure the self? I would say fulfillment of a leader. See that this is really working, and this is really going to be a better week than last week's. So it's difficult to measure. No, that doesn't have any quantitative result. Doesn't matter how much money he has in the pocket or not. Now his whole attitude towards the world, towards the future, towards his kids has changed. Mm. And that makes women and guys leaders every single day. I so love Kevin, that. I love Kevin, that. Let, me, yeah, let, me, let me add one final thing to the beautiful thing that Tony Absolutely. just said. Just uh, like one sentence for our business plan, one sentence for this leadership, great leadership question of yours is at SharedX, we have lots of leaders. And one of the things I've learned is having lots of leaders brings its own and different yield improvement to the organization and to the community. I love that. That's that's authentic. And I'll you know just kind of sum that up for our audience. You know, well, first of all, I just want to thank you both for coming on this podcast today. I'm glad this was able to work. We've got we got Tony in Peru coming in. We were trying to figure out some Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi worked out great today, so I'm happy we got this ready to go. Uh, Tony and John, again, you know, thank you for coming on. This is this has been a pleasure of mine. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Most Summit uh, coming in May in Portland. Uh, and for everyone tuned in, you're what makes this podcast. It's it's up to you to kind of take what you have learned from these conversations from these two leaders uh, and apply them in your own businesses, your own companies, uh, and empower others, uh, just like uh, these two uh, uh, gentlemen have said today. Um, so for you know for, for John Dennison uh, and Tony Salas, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, inspire others, create lots of leaders that are empowered, and always, folks. Keep it real. Gentlemen, thank you.
Thanks, Kevin. Great job. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. If you made it this far in the podcast, we want to thank you by offering our listeners 25% off a one-year magazine subscription, which is going to save you about $18, bringing the price down to $54 a year. To do this, you can go online to real-lears.com slash subscribe. Enter in code PODCAST25. That's PODCAST25, all lowercase, to get your magazine and take on business as usual to influence your community through your company. Thanks again, everyone, for supporting the Real Leaders Podcast and Real Leaders Magazine. Stay tuned for our next episode with more Real Leaders Impact Awards CEOs. We'll see you there.